All right, if you haven't been with us, we've been in Revelation for, this is our ninth week, and we finally made it to chapter 3. So um, we looked at the, the last church that's identified in chapter 2, which was Smyrna, talked a good bit about it last week. Um, just, just looking at what Jesus is saying to his church and commending them for their growing and their relationship with him and um, wanting to hold them accountable because of their tolerance of certain things and uh, just a reminder that we constantly see throughout Scripture that many of us tend to forget um, is that the only way that we actually show repentance is to have nothing to do with the thing that we're repenting of. So we, we tend to think that repentance is just our way out of something, but it's, it's the beginning of, of acknowledging that there's something wrong and then working within the framework that the Holy Spirit has given us and been, the Spirit that's been put in us to stay away from it. And so there's a big difference between the idea that, well, I'll just keep repenting over and over again. And, and I've said from the beginning that when you really start to fold revelation on top of itself and really look at what Jesus is saying to us, you see a deepening picture. And I think even looking at the churches, you see a deepening picture as he uh, deals with each one in order. And as we get to this one today, it draws upon some of the same things that we see from the previous two churches and goes a little bit deeper once again um, in the way that we see him address his church and the way that we see him encourage his church and then ultimately warn his church uh, about the things that they are dealing with. So we're going to jump right back in and we're going to be in Revelation 3 uh, verses 1 through 6 today. Uh, looking at the the next church that comes to comes to us by the way of Sardis, and so this is what it says in Revelation chapter three. It says to the angel of the church in Sardis, write: These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds; you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their clothes. I like that. That's what I'm talking about. We've got some clean folks still there. It says, they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. You know, if you soil yourself, you don't want to wear white. <laughs> It's gross and it's visible. You like to wear dark clothes if you're soiling yourself. He says, He says, The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and His angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we do as we've done. We'll, we're going to go back to that first verse and verse 1 and see how Jesus introduces himself to this particular church and he just comes out and he says these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars and he tells them that I know your deeds and you have a reputation of being alive but you are dead and so right off the bat I'm just gonna say this very bluntly and plainly this is not good um to have a reputation of being alive but being dead, I personally believe is a massive representation of what the church is today. You can fill buildings full of people. You can do all of these marketing campaigns and you can look like you're alive, but God says spiritually, I know you and I know you're dead. And you can see it by the fruit that's being produced out of the people that, that are churning out of these machines. And you can see it in our midst by what's coming out of us when we leave here. Are we just coming here because this is what we're supposed to do? Because that should not be the intent or the reason why we do what we do. But it all in some total is the appearance of being alive, but God is telling the church that they are actually dead. Now, there's good news to go along with that because it doesn't always have to be just blatantly bad. But it's not good to be addressed this way. But at the same time, it kind of is good to be addressed this way because remember, we've said this throughout, we're still in a phase where Jesus is warning us. 
Because he's in the business of bringing dead things back to life. He's not about making bad things good or making ugly things pretty. He's in the business of bringing dead people back to life. And everybody outside of the faith, whether we like it or not, no matter how much we love them, they're dead. It's death all the way around. He's saying much of this is inside what they think is my church, but it's really not. And so when you think about how we've looked at this and how Jesus has addressed his church in some total, it always has something to do with the characteristics of the culture that they're in. And so when you look at Sardis, Sardis being a little bit different than the others, um, whereas you had you know, Ephesus, when we talked about Ephesus, they're a port city, uh, major trade routes coming in and out through by way of sea. Uh, they're the first church on the southern border that we see. And as Jesus is addressing, he's kind of making his way up the coast and inland. When you get to Sardis, Sardis is actually at a crossroads of major thoroughfare for Roman roadway system. So you've got a lot of like terrain that you got to think about. There's a lot of mountain. There's a lot of water. There's a lot of, it's, it's a very treacherous trek to go from church to church, city to city. But when you get to Sardis, you have kind of this idea and you have this picture of Sardis kind of being in the center and there being four thoroughfares that go in and out that really connect Sardis to all of the other major cities. So I've got a map that I want you to be able to see. And when you, when you see what I'm talking about, you can kind of see the interconnectivity. Now, looking at this map, you want to make sure that you realize something because like we had a conversation earlier about just the way we interpret things sometimes versus how it would be interpreted when you look at it. So when you look at this, these cities are not very far spread. So in our thought process, these are like trips from Summit to Macomb. And some instances from like Summit to Brookhaven. And we're like, well, that's no big deal. You know, Summit to Brookhaven is, you know, just a 15-mile drive. They ain't driving nowhere. So three, four miles between you and you're having to tote people and you're toting your stuff. And if you're trading in any kind of industry, you've got to carry all of your merchandise. It's, you're talking about several days worth of walking and toting. And it's not easy. And so when Rome took over this, these provinces, they put road systems in. Like where we get our idea for roadways, it came from the ancient Roman world. And so if you, if you look at the map, Justin, you can go ahead and put that up there. It kind of gives you a picture. It's not real easy to see, but you've got these road systems and there's not many of them. It's not where you've got 50 roads that lead in and out of these places. So at the, at the point where you've got Smyrna to your left, Sardis in the middle, Philadelphia, you also have Thyatira and Pergamum going back up the coast. Sardis also goes around the eastern portion and goes back up to Nicaea. I'll talk about Nicaea in just a minute as well. But that's the only way in and out of these places. So you're not going to take a lot of trips because if you notice, south of Smyrna and Sardis is nothing but mountains. So these roads are cut between mountains. North is massive rivers that you would have to cross, plus mountainous terrain. So you're going to use these roads and these systems. So all of these interconnected uh, ways are all kind of leading you to this place. It's kind of the hub where everybody is going to travel. If you're coming from Nicaea and you're trying to get to Philadelphia, guess where you're going? You're going through Sardis at some point. If you're trying to get from... Philadelphia up to Thyatira, you're going to go to Sardis. If you're trying to get from Pergamum down to Smyrna, you're going to go through Sardis. You're not going to, you're not going to kind of bypass this. So there, it's a major place of connectivity. And, and when we see the direct connection that we find between all of that, we, we have to kind of remember the way that Scripture circulates at this time. So where we are blessed with a compilation of Scripture that we can go to and read anytime we want to, at this time, there are pieces and fragments of Scripture, but they are being orally received back and forth. And so where I'll stand up here and do everything that I can to rightly parse out the Word or teach the Word, that was the consistent norm for people. They didn't walk around with scrolls, unroll them, and have conversations about it. There was some of that, but for the most part, it was all handed Orally, And so when you think about that and you think about these routes, where the word's going, the reason I point out Nicaea and all this, if you're not familiar with it, Nicaea is actually where the council of Nicaea met. Now, 
Um, I don't know where in history we got the idea that the Bible was actually compiled as a result of the Council of Nicaea because that's not true. Uh, there, were, there were a lot of debates at the Council of Nicaea that came to be, um, came to be known as how we got the canon of Scripture. But the Bible was already in circulation prior to this. The interesting thing and the reason that I bring it up and why Nicaea is connected here is because at the Council of Nicaea, they rejected the book of Revelation. They wanted to leave it out of any future compilations of Scripture as we know it. But as you can tell, it was not left out because there is way too much prophetic knowledge to just leave that out. But I also find it interesting that even though it is compiled and we have it, you don't hear it taught very often. So what does it have to do with any of this? Well, when this word is circulating through all of this world that we see and know as the, the Asian world that, the, that Rome inhabits, you, you realize that it got to a point where we tried to make things easier, but we failed because we tried to control something as well. Now, how often do we see that take place in our society? So basically, if you really think about it, the laws that we have in place are not to keep bad people separated from good people. It's to keep everybody going in the same direction. That's the intention. But what happens when we, as brilliant, knowledgeable thinkers, get behind those thoughts? We always look for the way to kind of go around it, right? And so the same thing kind of crept in with this. Now, if you go back just to Sardis, and let's just think on Sardis, because that's where we're really uh, looking today. We think about Sardis, and we think about what that city represented. And this is where, where we talked about uh, dyers and things from uh, Smyrna last week, where the purple dye and textile industry kind of goes. This became the major thoroughfare where like that became the the way of life in Sardis. So where Smyrna did it in a small sense, Sardis had the benefit of having the ability to, we would call it ship, but to move products better because of the connectivity that they had all over the Asian provinces. And so Sardis actually becomes recognized as the leading in industry as far as textiles, also where carpet was developed for the first time. And you see these massive, beautiful rugs that became known um, as luxury items in homes where there were, you know, dirt floors. Now we have rugs being put down. And if you had those, you were considered to be uh, not royalty, but wealthy. And most everybody in Sardis had that. So it became one of those things that just became kind of normal. Um, as always, you go back and you look at the Greek side of things, and we've seen in every one of these cities that there's a Greek god or goddess that is a primary central focus of worship. And if you're familiar with the goddess known as Sybil, she's actually called um, the, the mother goddess, meaning she's the mother of all the gods. It's ironic that Sardis is situated in the central portion of these churches, the interconnectivity that it has, and all things are birthed from here and then travel out just like from a mother. And so the, the ritualistic, similar to what we've seen and everywhere else, the immoral acts, we'll just leave it at that, that are performed and constantly gone over. One of the reasons that Jesus addresses his church with the words, these are the words of him who hold the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, he uses this word because of the fact that the worship that is going on is to this mother goddess. He's saying, look, not only do I hold you, because we know what the seven stars are. The seven stars have been identified already as the seven churches. He says, I hold these in my hand. But he also mentions that he holds the seven spirits. Now, the reason that worship of Sybil was such a big deal is because it was said that Sybil not only brought prosperity, but actually brought life and light. So when Jesus addresses his church, we know how he addresses the church. We know that the spirit of God is what is said to bring life, right? And we also know that Jesus said, 
It's recorded in the Gospels that the church is the light of the world. And so Jesus is telling them, you can keep trying to worship this goddess that's going to claim to give you this, but I hold that in my hand. Not, not, a, not like the sense of it's in my right hand. He just says, this is how insignificant your worship of this person is. I hold those things in my hand. She's telling you she's it. I'm telling you that I just hold it in my hand. I'm so much bigger than that. And if you go back and, and you just, you're reminded of this throughout Revelation. I mean, when, when John first tells us of the, the, the description of Jesus in Revelation 1-4, he says to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come from the seven spirits of the throne. And then in verse 16, he says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. So the, the difference just simply is the implication of what Jesus is trying to say. Life, according to the word, comes from the spirit. These are the seven spirits that I hold. And you can go to Romans 8. He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. That's the same spirit he's talking about. Same word used. He just uses the word seven because seven is perfection. This is my spirit. This is a spirit that I've offered to my people, my church. In verse 18, he says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. That's why a minute ago I said everybody outside of the faith is dead. When you come to know Jesus, you're alive. When you are when you are endowed with his spirit, there's life. That's where life comes from. But Michael, when we're born, we're arguing over whether life starts at conception or if life starts at birth no we're not we're arguing over we're arguing over dead people who are dead until they know Jesus so are you saying you're for it? no I'm not saying I'm for it. it's still taking it's still taking the opportunity for life away that's the problem that we have God is the author and perfecter of our faith and he's also the giver of life it's not my job to take or not so he says that about the life that comes only by the Spirit. And then I've already mentioned it, but I'll just show you, just so you know, it's not my opinion. Matthew chapter 5, he says that you are the light of the world. Anybody who has faith in Jesus that is a believer, he says that you're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people put, uh, light a lamp and put it under a basket and said they set it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And it's interesting when you think about Jesus saying these words that are recorded in Matthew 5 and him addressing the church at Sardis. Because there's a, there's a key component about Sardis that I haven't mentioned yet. Sardis is a city that's situated on a hill. So when Jesus is saying this about this, it's also about their physical location and where they are. So when he addresses them, he mentions a couple things. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So the church in Sardis has a problem. I, I'm just going to put it like this. The church in Sardis has the same problem that the church that we know in the, the church in America has. It has an apathy problem. It has an I don't care problem. Because the culture had become so luxurious that it was just comfortable to sit back and just kind of chill with life and just say, well, look, I'm just going to take what's coming to me. I work hard. I deserve this. I deserve to be able just to enjoy life, eat, drink, and be married. The Bible says that. But Jesus is telling this crew something different. He's saying the reason that you're doing that is because the culture has influenced you. And just like the culture has influenced you, he tells them that I'm going to come like a thief. In the, I'm going to come like a thief. You're not going to know when I'm coming. And they would understand this for two major reasons. Number one, this has happened to the city at Sardis twice. Because of their apathy, they had been raided first during the reign of King Cyrus. Now, when you look at that map and you see the roads that come in, all four of those roads that connect at Sardis, guess what? They are militarily heavily guarded. Nobody comes in and out without you knowing about it. But there are also places around that could be accessed, and the only reason that anybody knows it is because they took the time to scout. So there's, there's historical references outside of Scripture that tell us that King Cyrus sent 
uh, a commander of his army to attack this particular city. And so he went and he scouted. And he watched from down low looking up on the city, knowing that he could not send his troops through the front gate because they would have been slaughtered. Number one, you don't fight from a low position going high. If you've got the high ground, you're winning, right? But if you can find a way in the back door without anybody knowing it, then you can win the battle, right? So there was an instance that the, the historical reference says that a soldier lost his helmet and it went down the side of a craggy uh, trail. He retrieved it very easily and walked back up. And the, the, the soldier that was sent saw what he did. And so in their apathy, he went on about his business and was not guarding that because they, in their, in their little, I'm living up here in high ground, didn't worry about it because nobody knows it's there. But the soldiers saw it, took a platoon in, and they took the entire city. It happened on two separate occasions. So it wasn't just that they had a, had a, had a bad situation and then what we tend to do, well, I won't let that happen again. They did let it happen again. Why? Because they got comfortable again in their little culture. Church, we're doing the same thing. And we allow this same principle to come up. We think we're sitting as the light situated on a hill. But we don't look anything different than the culture around us. We do the same things that everybody else does out of the faith. We say the same things. We watch the same things on TV. We let the same crap in our house. We let the same thing plague our minds. We, let, we, we just do. Well... What am I supposed to do? I can't boycott everything. I'm not telling you to do that, but I'm telling you to use a little bit of discernment and to be on guard because ultimately that's what Jesus is trying to tell his church here. Just like the city has been taken twice, you're about to be taken. And he doesn't say that an enemy is going to take them out. He says that I'm going to be the one that comes like a thief. That ought to scare you to death. I was watching something yesterday. It was, it was, it was kind of funny, but it kind of wasn't. It was a panel of... It's pastors, theologians that were sitting on a panel and audiences was asking questions and they would just fill out a little card and this moderator would ask the question and he pulled this question out. And it's a question that you've probably heard before. I'm not going to, I don't know the, I don't remember the exact wording, but basically what the question was, why is it that we see God in the Old Testament being so judgmental and harsh? And then when we get to the New Testament, we see this gracious and loving and tolerant God and one of the pastors that was present said let, let me let me answer that question he said for some reason everybody that's read the left side of the Bible talking about the Old Testament get to the right side but they don't go quite far enough they stop and they don't deal with revelation because that God is more vengeful than the God of the Old Testament that's still the God that we serve and he's warning the church here he says if you do not wake up, I'm coming like a thief. Just like they snuck up the hill and took Sardis, he's telling the church because they would know what he's talking about, I'm coming. And remember what I said a couple weeks ago, Jesus is like, you don't want this smoke. You don't want it. Not like this. And so when, when we think about that in our own personal little lives, we, we just forget. And, and here's, here's the thing, like to me, Comfort is the killer of eternal security. Like we just get, even, even in the church, we just get so comfortable. You know, I can wander in and out whenever I want to. Oh, it doesn't have any effect on my relationship with God. Relationships with people are easier than relationship with God, folks. Our comfort is the killer of, of eternal security. I'm going to say something in a few minutes that most of you are not going to like. I'm just telling you from the biblical perspective, it's the truth. But comfort is the killer. Like Jesus just told them, you're comfortable in this little apathetic mindset that you have, and it's going to kill you. Well, Michael, I'm saved. I got saved years ago. But you ain't living like you are. If the things of God don't matter, I dare say you're not saved. That's between you and the Lord. You need to deal with that. But comfort's becoming the killer of us in the same sense. So if we think about it, I, I, I've heard this statement made many times. It's a quote. I can't remember what the... It's from a book, but it says, Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. Y'all heard that before? So here, here's kind of the biblical perspective of that. Hard times create vigilant men. 
Vigilant men create comfortable times. Comfortable times create apathetic men, and apathetic men create hard times. Only the problem is, is when we're talking about eternal security, that the hard time is like hard time eternally. And we have to be really careful about allowing ourselves to be comfortable and allowing ourselves to just think, you know, there really ain't no big deal about this stuff. The, the devil wants you thinking that way. He doesn't want you to be on guard for anything that he's throwing at you. He wants you to be apathetic towards everything. Well, it doesn't matter. I don't care. It's okay. I can just pray to ask for forgiveness later. You're already in the wrong place. You're in the wrong place. They had gotten comfortable because they look, they were they were thriving. They're able to sell their rugs and carpets and you know, it's kind of like the, the movie Aladdin. They're floating around on them pretty magic carpets and just living the good life, a whole new world. I mean, that's kind of the picture that we get here. I mean, they're not flying around on magic carpets, but you know what I mean. That, but we do the same thing. Look, I, I, we t I've talked about this before. This country, if you make more than $30,000 a year, you're in the top 1% worldwide. And we complain, well, I don't make enough money or I don't have enough because you are living in luxury and you're comfortable with it and it's killing you. You're never secure in it. You're never satisfied. You're never happy. Always got to have more. I've, look, I've been, I've, been a, I've, I've been an idiot with that myself. Well, I just need to be satisfied with what I have. No, we need, to, we need to wake up. That's what Jesus says. Go back to verse 2. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Wake up, strengthen what is what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. You, hey, you were doing good. You were there. You were close. You were thriving. He says, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and hold it fast and repent. There is that word that we don't like once again. Because if I repent, that means that i got to say that I was wrong. If I repent, I've got to say that God was right. And maybe, just maybe, I'm not the center of my universe. And for us, selfish humanity, that's hard. I like to be the center of my universe. I like for everybody else to cater to me. I like, I like, I like. And I know you do too. Don't sit there and lie, sinner. Because we all are that way. It, we're, it's ingrained in us. I've said it so many times. Look how precious these little babies are in this room. But you know what? I don't have to teach none of those babies how to do the wrong thing. It comes pre-programmed. I have to teach them babies to do the right thing. As precious as they are, it comes ingrained. We constantly have to go through that. And it did look, as we get older, the sin just changes. It just gets worse. It's different. But it's the same thing. It's, it's the enemy's just trying to keep you and I Separated. So Jesus addresses them in such a way to warn and tell them to strengthen. Because they know we've already been conquered because we weren't ready. Because we were asleep at the wheel. And he says, wake up. And he's telling us, church, wake up. The good news here is always, though, is that this is still a warning. So we need to remember that. Like Jesus is warning us. He's saying, believer, wake up. You're, you're asleep at the wheel again. And this is not... Jesus take the wheel, kind of sleeping at the wheel. We're just asleep at the wheel and we ain't trusting nobody. He's like, you, you got to wake up. And he's, he's, he's telling us that we still have the ability to heed this warning because we're still living. And the time that we have, we can do what Jesus says we should. He reminds us, he reminds the church at Ephesus back in Ephesians, he says, you were formerly darkness. That's not your way of life anymore. So when you close your eyes, it's dark. So Jesus is saying, open your eyes and realize that you're living in the light now. You're not darkness any longer. He says, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, 
because the days are evil. So the word still is still so important to see what he's saying to them in Revelation and reminding them. Because remember, this word would have gone forth previously. This church would remember Paul wrote this and would remember that this was already said and would have taken it as if Jesus was saying it to them directly. And so when we go back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 3, and we look at this comfort being the killer of our eternal security, he says, remember. He says, remember. Remember what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Here's the deal. Remembrance leads to repentance. I'm going to say that word until I draw my last breath. It's required. Remembrance leads to repentance. He says, remember what you have received and heard. And then he tells them to hold it fast and repent. Like, I don't know where we got off track a little bit in the church where we can regurgitate Bible verse after Bible verse, but when it comes to actually living something out, we don't do it. Because remember what I said last week about repentance. It means that I don't have anything to do with that anymore. And we were talking about this today. There's a difference between willfully walking back into a sin that you know is a sin and just living and saying, you know what? God's grace is going to cover me. And being in a sin and going, God, I don't want to do this, but I keep falling for the same trap. And then repenting. That's real repentance. There's a difference, and you know the difference. It's like an alcoholic who struggles with alcoholism and says, I'm going to battle this. I'm going to fight. Lord, forgive me. Even though I know it's still there, Lord, forgive me. I'm going to continue to battle this. That's repentance. It's not repentance just to walk back into anything and just be okay with it. So we have to make sure that we are put in a place where the Lord reminds us of where we have come from and where he is taking us. And when we get to that place, we go back and we can even think through Revelation 2 where like Jesus has already said this, consider how far you have fallen. And then he tells them, here's the simple fact, repent. Like keep in that place of repentance where you realize like, look, Lord, I know I screwed this up again. That's where his grace is sufficient when you realize the truth and you walk in the truth and you humble yourself and repent in the truth. That's where his grace is found. It gives you the opportunity to do that. His grace is not so you can just keep doing it. That's not grace. That's called enablement. He's not about that life. Because he says, consider how far you fall and repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And I talked about that. That's a clear statement that you are not my church. Okay? 2.16. That he's talking to the church about their belief and following the teachings of the Nicolaitans at this instance. Remember what the Nicolaitans did. Well, God's grace is sufficient. It's taken away the sting of death. I can do whatever I want to do. And he says, therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you shortly and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He said, I'm going to use the word and it's going to hurt. Remember, this is the one that I said, you don't want that smoke. Because he's going he gonna to whoop you with it. And it ain't gonna, this is an eternal whooping. This is the end of all things because remember, we're seeing a picture that's getting a little bit closer every time we look at this. And it gets a little bit deeper and it gets a little bit harder for us to look at it. And this is why so many people want to stay away from Revelation. Because it's not us learning Revelation, it's Revelation revealing something to us. It's extremely uncomfortable. It's extremely uncomfortable for myself studying this on a weekly basis and going, God, I don't want to deal with that. God's saying, I love you, son, but you're going to deal with it. Because that's what a loving father would do. You're going to deal with it. Church, we're going to deal with it. We're going to continue to dive in because that's what we're supposed to do. When we, when we come back to this and when, when we realize that the church at Sardis had gotten so comfortable that, that they're having to fight to recall this, that they're having God remind them through Jesus and his words to the church. We have to be reminded of that same thing consistently over and over again. And when it comes to mind, 
we have to be put back in a place of repentance. Well, Michael, why would I want to go back there? That's, those are hard, that's hard places to go. Because Jesus said you need to remember. That has to be enough. Well, what do I need to remember? You need to remember your life before you met him. Well, I don't even know what that is. I don't think my life's any different. Then you haven't met him. Like we, we, let's just, we got to get real with this. You, you hadn't, you hadn't met him. There's a clear marked difference. It's not in your behavior. It's not in your actions. It's not because you decided to start going to church or because you joined the church by getting baptized or you prayed a prayer. Those are all important things. It's got nothing to do with it. It's, it's because there's a marked difference. There's a marked difference when you get married and you're no longer on the market anymore. You can't just go do whatever you want to go do. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, we're going to be married, but you know what? You go see who you want to go see, and I'm going to go see who I want to go see. Try that. Try that with your wife or your husband. Ain't going to work. And you think that Jesus is going to tolerate it. We do it all the time because we've gotten comfortable. Because we've forgotten and we need to remember. And if you can't come up with something that he saved you from, you need to start praying, Lord, I need you. Because I don't know that there's ever been a relationship. Reveal it to me. Show me my need for you. Folks, we, we got to be able to get real with this. Because when he says he's going to come as a thief... It gets a little deeper in Revelation 16. He says, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. He's talking about the same thing that he's talking about in Revelation 3. You know, we had an experience last week that was a little odd. Some things going on around, around the homestead. And so I changed how I... I dealt with nighttime routines. I won't get into any details, but I like to sleep a certain way. And because of the things we were dealing with, I felt like I needed to sleep clothed and prepared. I'll just leave it at that. So I slept clothed and prepared. There was a pair of shoes laying right beside the edge of the bed. I had my socks on. I was completely clothed. It's the most uncomfortable thing in the world. I hate sleeping like that. But I needed to be ready. And that's exactly what he's talking about. He's not just talking about when we're asleep. He's talking about, I'm going to come like a thief. You need to make sure that your garments are clean. You ain't soiled yourself like the others have. And you're ready. See, the other part of it with the soiling of the garments, like they would understand that too because they were going into that temple of Sybil that I talked about earlier. You're not allowed to go in there if you're dirty. Like, you got to have clean clothes. So, hey, teenagers that don't shower, bathe, or have your clothes washed but once a week, you wouldn't have even been, been able to go in and worship this fake God. But God says you need to be ready, and you need to be clothed, and it needs to be clean. And the only way you can do that is to, is to be put in a place of remembrance that leads you to repentance. And he's very clear about that in this. The implications are massive for us spiritually. But it's not, it's not just that, because I think when we look at that and we talk about remembrance leading to repentance, we have this, we have to think about it like this. What we're remembering is how Jesus first came to me. How he made himself known to me. How he gave me his truth in order that I would receive what he offered me. That's what we're supposed to remember. And in this final instance, why he's warning the way that he is, he says, that's the way I came in the first place. This is the way I'm coming in the second place. You will not know because you already had the opportunity to know. I will give you my truth and have you depart from my presence because you don't have time. There's no more grace when he comes back. 
Like, I don't think we take that seriously enough, church. Judgment starts in the house of God. He's telling them this because when he comes back, he says, you're going to depart my presence. What I'm actually coming back to steal is my spirit that I have placed among you that you refuse to receive. And he's going to leave you in eternal separation. You see the difference? Nobody likes to get into revelation because they like, well, Jesus came and he made himself known and he gave me grace to receive his truth. He did, but he's coming back. Ain't no time when he comes back. He's coming back to get his spirit from the church that refused to receive that spirit. And you, you're left with nothing. That's, that's eternal death over and over and over again. That's why it's so important that remembrance leads to repentance. You need to find that place where you remember where you met Jesus. So when you go back to verses 4 through 6, he says, You have a few people in Sardis who have not yet sold their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Um, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, unlike Pergamum and Thyatira, where there were just a few bad among the good, we have a few good left among the bad. So the apathy is widespread in this church. Nobody cares, minus a few. Where we've seen the accountability side of things, we're still building upon that because the few need to influence the many. That's the mandate of the gospel. You have the gospel, you're supposed to be the presenter of the gospel. All the time, every time we have the opportunity. So when Jesus says all of that, I've already mentioned the, the part about the soiling of the garments and, and talking about being clean and, and right but what we tend to think is, is that we are faithful and obedient. But that's not what Jesus is getting at. He has produced the faithfulness in us. He's given us the ability by his spirit to be faithful. You and I can't be faithful apart from him. So apathy, when he's talking about this in this instance, is us faking it till we make it. I've heard that said so many times in the church. We're going to fake it till we make it. You're going to fake it right into hell. You can't fake this. You can't fake his spirit. You can pretend to have a spiritual gift, but you can't fake the empowerment of the spirit that goes behind it. It's not possible. And discerning spirits that, that have the Holy Spirit can see it. And that's where the accountability stuff comes in. And so we start in the right place. We didn't produce this. He did. We just responded to it. That's all we did. And so when he says the one who's victorious in verse 5 will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. Here's where we run into a problem. Because, you know me, I ask a lot of questions. And that says, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. So you're telling me that you can blot a name out of the book of life? It says right there you can. But Michael, we've been told that our names can't be removed from the book of life. He says, if you're victorious and you are found to be dressed in white, I won't blot your name out. But if you think about this and you ask yourself a question, doesn't that mean that he can blot your name out? Michael, that's not fair. It's not for you to decide what's fair. So when I hit this, I got chills. Because... <clears throat> I've stood up here before and I've, I've made this known, but it was like I went back through the scriptures and I looked at every instance where the book of life is revealed. And you know how many times it comes up that God took people out of the book of life? It's a lot. Your faithfulness that's being produced by the Holy Spirit is a necessity. Your name ain't staying in a book if you ain't living the life. We were joking about it this morning, saying, well, there's no telling how many times my name's been erased and then rewritten and erased and rewritten and erased and rewritten. <laughs> Big old thick layer of white out. Yeah, you made it this time. And look, I'm only going to show you this because I think it's important because we have hinged our Christianity on our decision. It's not your decision. 
Jesus is not a microwavable meal. Man, I'm hungry. I'm going to go pop one in the microwave. And I made a decision. The only ones who are saved are because he has drawn them unto salvation, according to Scripture. And I told you a couple weeks ago, it says they are being saved. Well, Michael, don't you believe in once saved, always saved? You explain to me what that means without you saying you did something. Because that's where that theology starts. Well, I prayed a prayer. I got baptized. I walked an aisle. I did this. I did that. I, I, I. Your theology is starting with you. This theology doesn't start with you. Salvation doesn't start with you. Salvation starts with the Lord. Righteousness and justice and mercy are from the house of the Lord, not from this vessel. I can't produce it in myself. That's why it's so important that we start at the right place. Now, did you respond to him? Absolutely, you responded to him. Do you have the ability to do that? Absolutely, you have the ability to do that. But he also is the God of the universe. And how dare you question him? So he says, I will, I will, not blot, I will never blot out the names of the ones who I see dressed in white. So let's go back a little bit. Let's go all the way back to Exodus 32. Moses is pleading with God about this same thing. He says, So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made gods of gold for themselves. Yet now, if you would only forgive their sins, but if not, please blot me out of the book. Why would he say that if it's not possible? And what does God say in return? Verse 33. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But, but I got saved at nine years old. Staying in a humble, repentant relationship consistently. Because it says that I will blot out those who sin against me. We need to be really careful about what we're actually putting our faith in. I've said this a thousand times. I have been called some... That's not, that's, that's improper theology. Did I make that up? That's, that's, that, you translate that back to the King James Version, it's just got these thousand thuses in it. That's the only difference. I didn't write, I will blot out of my book. God said it in Exodus 32. The psalmist even said, David said in Psalm 69, he says, may they be blotted out of the book of life and not listed with the righteous. Who? Those who are sinning against the Lord. Go read the entirety of Psalm 69. Why would David say that if it's not possible? If the people of the Bible said that it's possible, why have we consistently believed that it's not? Because in our apathy, we've never asked the question. And it's why Jesus addresses this church the way that he addresses them. In your apathy, in your comfort, in your little cozy little huddle, you're not asking questions. You're not making sure that you're on guard. You've just believed every little thing that's come up. Church, you've got to be careful. Now, I'm not going to tell you, just look, don't just take my word for it. What have I told you? I always want you to go back and investigate this for yourself. Let the word stand on its own. I, I, I'm prayerfully, I have interjected no opinion into this. But it clearly says that David wanted them blotted out of the book of life because of their sin. And it clearly said that the Lord told Moses that anyone who sins against me will be blotted out of the book of life. And anybody that wants to try to justify how that's not possible, I have a hard time with that. You can even go to Daniel... Daniel talks about this, a little bit different, but Daniel speaking directly to what we're dealing with in Revelation. So all the way back in Daniel's day, he says, At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people will rise up. There will be a time of distress, the likes of which will not have occurred from the beginning of nations until that time. But at that time, he says, your people. Who are your people? He makes sure he notes who his people are. Everyone whose name is found in the book will be delivered. Now remember, they've just said that your name can be removed from the book, so you need to make sure. The only thing that matters is when Jesus comes, my name's in the book. When he looks it up 
and he's looking for his people, my name's in the book. So you can believe whatever you want to, but you better be ready when the thief comes and your name better be in the book. That's the only thing that matters. At the end of the day, it is the only thing that matters. Now look, I know it's a heavy thought. I know. I've never been taught it. It's never been something that theologically ever comes up. Because theologically, we don't want to deal with this. We like to be comfortable in our little Christianity. But it's not going to be comfortable when we come back and my name ain't in the book. You better make sure your name's in the book. You better be about his life and what he's trying to do through you and what he's trying to do around you. And you need to be a part of that. And if you're not, you need to, you need to sit humbly wherever you quietly pray to yourself. Lord, I want to make sure my name's in the book. That's the only thing that matters. So when you get to the end of Revelation, it tells us. like here's the we've, We're looking at the picture from a little bit higher in Revelation 3. Let's go on back to Revelation 20 and let's get right over the, the situation here. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and the one seated on it, that's Jesus. He says, Earth and heaven fled from His presence. It says that no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and there were open books. And one of them, the exact same book. It was the book of life. It says the dead were judged according to their deeds as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead, and each one was judged according to his death, to his deeds. It says then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone was found whose name was not written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. Just warned us in Revelation 3, and I'm just skipping ahead so you get the big picture right there standing at that judgment seat. I don't want to be, and I don't want you to be standing there without your name in the book. And so we go back and we ask ourselves the question that we've asked over and over again, and I've told you over and over again, the deeper we go into this, the harder this is going to get. We're just, we're just in the churches. We're in chapter 3. Wait till we're looking at chapter 14 and 15 and 16 when there's all these freaking monsters and crazy stuff going on that he's been warning us about in this instance, but now he's showing us the picture. So we go back and we ask ourselves the question that we have to ask ourselves. When he comes... Is my name going to be found in the book of life? Is he coming to save me or is he coming to judge me? If he's coming to judge me, I just showed you. It says anyone whose name is not found in the book, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, Michael, that's so mean. You've had all this time to get it right. Don't miss it because when he comes, he's either coming to save or he's coming to judge. And it, it all depends on whether or not your name is in the book of life. Let me pray for you this morning.